Just kidding. Yeah. Let me turn these off. <laughs> ah. There we go. How's everybody doing? You ready for some chili and some football? And uh, we are heading over, I'm sure Kirk said, but I want to say it again, uh, 12, around 12.30, just walking over to the park, just to the north here at Emerald Park. So come on out. Even if you want to play football, you can come and watch and hang out and meet some people and have fun. So uh, hopefully it won't rain. I don't think it's going to rain, but, you know, we're going we're to try to pray that off. Well, we want rain on every other day but today. Amen. Well, Jesus, uh, as we open up the Word of God this morning, we ask that you just open up our hearts to receive what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. This is our final message uh, in our series, Contracts versus Covenants. And we've been spending the month of November talking about marriage, biblical purpose of marriage, but also really been talking about covenants. Uh, because marriage is really, in a, not just for us, but an example of a covenantal relationship that, that we have with God, that, that we have with each other. And so whether you've been, uh, whether you're single or married or even going through a divorce, these are principles that uh, not only help us for the future, but also help us in our relationship with God as marriage is a direct correlation. And this morning, we're going to finish up with fighting. How many of you love to fight in your marriage, you know? Don't you ever have nights where it's like, oh, man, we're going we're gonna to get it on tonight. You're almost like, you know, raring for a good one. You know, you got, you got some stress to get out. And, you know, no, okay, maybe not. But I have a lot of fun with it, actually, because Tanya and I's fights typically end up at us busting out laughing at each other. So uh, <clears throat> we've been fortunate and blessed to have that. But this morning, we're going to talk about how conflicts can actually bring us closer. And uh, how those, how that can happen. If you have a Bible with me, please turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4, verse 1. If you were to ask me, Pastor Tom, where does conflict come from? Well, the Bible has an answer for that. The Bible has an answer for where conflicts come from. In James chapter 4, verse 1, James writes, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from the desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and you fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you do ask God, you do not receive because you are asking with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now, this may be harsh in some ways and, and exaggerated in others. I don't, I don't see everybody here committing murder when they don't get what they want. But the fact of the matter is, quoted simply, conflict occurs when we do not get what we want or a desire goes unfulfilled. An unmet expectation or an unmet need. In fact, I heard one person say it perfectly, not getting what we feel we deserve. A lot of times, what we feel that we deserve is that people will perform perfectly around us. I don't know about you, but sometimes I wake up and I think, you know what, everybody's got to be nice to me today. You know, everybody's got to like me today. Everybody's got to respect me today. You know, I, I want people to always be thinking of me. You know, if you're not thinking of me, that hurts my feelings. That, I, I deserve better than that. And the fact of the matter is that sometimes we need to let people off the hook. 
We place a lot of expectations for people to perform for us, be, be nice to us, give us what we feel that we deserve. But, you know, people, they're just as, you know, moody and they're just as unpredictable. They're just as prone to failure as we are. And sometimes we just need to let people off the hook. Amen? Now, the second thing is conflict happens when we get what we feel we don't deserve. Not getting what we deserve is one thing, but when we get something and we feel we don't deserve it, that's another. If you have a Bible, turn with me to Job chapter 2. In beginning of verse 7, I'll read it. It says, So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and afflicted Job with painful sores. Uh, so Job is getting sick. He's just lost uh, his, his, you know, his income, his business, his family. I mean, there's been some terrible things that have happened. Job has lost everything, probably than the shirt on his back. And now he gets painfully sick with all these sores and these cysts all over him. It says in verse 8, Job took a piece of broken pottery and he began to scrape the sores so that the, 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 he could try to heal them, scraping himself. That's how low he had become. And then in verse 9, his wife comes to him. And his wife says, are you still maintaining your integrity? Are you, Job, still maintaining your integrity? You should just curse God and die. And then Job says something incredible. He says, you are talking like a foolish woman. <laughs> you are talking like you never saw the movie. It's okay. Anyway, you're, you're talking like a foolish woman. Should we accept the good from God and not the bad? What a statement. Of, I, I, very rare is it put so well in the Bible. Shall we accept the good from God and not the struggles? Shall we take only the blessings and not endure the trials? Is that what kind of people we have become? That we can't endure a little pain from time to time? That we can't go through a little struggle from time to time? Are we children, dear wife, that we can't trust God in the good and trust him in the bad? It's interesting because in our marriage vows, we have that line, you know, for better or for worse. I'm beginning to wonder if we really mean that. If it is really stuck with us because there are times... Hopefully not the whole orb of your marriage or your relationship. But there are times when it is definitely seems like it is for worse. And so often, when it's for worse, we feel like giving up. Never have I seen more of an entitlement society than I do today. We're entitled to the American dream. And once we began to place our individual entitlements above our relationships with people, other things began to creep in and attack the covenant. Kids can attack the covenant. Families can attack the covenant. Money attacks the covenant. Sex attacks the covenant. All these things we began to place higher of our own fulfillment begins to attack it. This is Job's wife. Obviously, Job was not enough for her. He was still alive. In fact, when he needed his wife to support him most, 
He'd lost everything, and now he had painful boils all over his hands. If there was ever a moment for his wife to shine, it would have been then. And what does she say? I didn't sign up for this. I know we said for better or for worse, but it didn't really mean the worst. He told you were you were kind of rich when we met. You know, I, you know, I kind of saw a different storyline playing out. And now look at you. You should just curse God and die. Look what God did to you. Now I don't want any part of that. What happens sometimes is the issues become more important than the relationship. One of the things that a, a, a pastor had said to me years ago that I never forgot, I try to live up to it, I don't always do it perfectly, but he said, Tom, never forget, the relationship is more important than the issue. I'm like everybody else. I want to fight my case. I want to believe I'm right. I want to get what I want, and I don't want to get what I don't feel I don't deserve. It's a very natural inclination. The fact of the matter is one of the things that we're called to in covenantal relationships is quite frankly always placing the relationship above the issue. To tell my wife, wife, you, you are more important to me than any of these other issues. You. May you always feel that way. I know maybe time version doesn't. But I try. Next thing is conflicts typically begin with the little things. If you're waiting for the big thing, the big thing usually comes because a lot of little things have come, right? Uh, my second cousin, who I just met recently in San Francisco, I, I had a California family my whole life, but we just never had anything to do with it because we lived in California, you know? Um, anyway, I grew up in Michigan. And so, uh, so you know, but I finally got together with them because they're all out there. I'm not too far away. We had Thanksgiving last year, and he told me he used to own a vineyard in Napa. And I'm thinking, oh, second cousin, why couldn't you be my dad? I could inherit millions. Anyway, no. And so, uh, you know, he had this vineyard, and he, I said, what was the hardest part of the vineyard? He said, every morning. He said, I hated doing this. I had to walk the fences. He said, because if there was just the smallest hole, the smallest little breach in the fence, little animals would come in and they'd chew up the vines of the roots and lose the whole thing, lose the whole tree. Solomon, in the Song of Solomon, in chapter 215, says, catch for us the little foxes that ruin the vineyards. What's he saying? It's the little things that come in and become the big problem. And finally, I had an email, a couple emails this week asking why I've done a whole series on marriage and I've not really mentioned or planned on preaching on sex. And it is a huge part of our society today, uh, a huge topic. It's everywhere. Uh, commercials, TV, it's all over the place. Sex, 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 sex. You think of America, it's sex. There's sex everywhere. And I just want to address that real quickly with just one sentence. Most of the problems that I have found in the bedroom are the result of problems outside the bedroom. Uh, solve the problems outside the bedroom, which is what this series has been a part. And, you know, then inside the bedroom, things will follow their natural orderly course. And so uh, moving on to number two here, what do we do? What do you do when neither will budge? 
You know, you're in a conflict, you're in a fight, you're duking it out with someone, and nobody is gonna, no one's giving it, no one's gonna bunch. And you have that, you, you know, maybe you walk away, or you, you know, you have to go to work, and it's an unresolved fight or an unresolved conflict, and, and you just, you know, you're at that awkward stage. This could be really with anybody. This doesn't just apply to marriage. This is just a conflict, a relational conflict. What do you do? First one, number one. Examine the offense after the emotions have subsided. <coughs> Do not trust your feelings in a fight. Do not allow your feelings to bring sentences to your mind and then you want to say them and go with them and feel the feeling of them. That's what we need to stop. Sometimes it's good that you got to go to work. Sometimes it's good that you got to go to bed. Sometimes it's good that you take five minutes and you go to opposite sides of the house. Or sometimes it's good that you don't respond to the email right away or you don't respond to the text right away or you take a few days to allow the emotions to subside. Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger and it is glory to overlook an offense. Because we have to ask the questions, what role did I play? What role did I play? Did I neglect something? Was I unclear in something I wanted to say? Was I being passive and allowed something to happen? Was I being apathetic? Was there an area where I just simply didn't care? What you got was apathy. It wasn't a, 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 a proactive attack against you. It was neglect. Waiting often helps you to allow you to answer those questions when the adrenaline has subsided, when the emotions have subsided, when the deep anger has subsided. And it's crucial that we do that. Because the second part really goes along with the first, which is the wait to confront or deal with it until you can do it in love. Now I know I'm going against a lot of what is out there. You know, deal with things quickly. Take care of it before the sun goes down. I, I, I get that. I understand that. To a degree, I can't say that it's practically worked for me. I know for me, I have got to examine things first, and I have got to wait until I can address it in love. Otherwise, I could burn the relationship for good. If it's not my wife. If it is my wife, well, she's stuck with me, so there's nothing she can do about that, but... Uh, Ephesians 4.15 says, Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way to him who is the head and to Christ. Ephesians 4.29 says, Choose your words carefully. One of the things that I do when I'm in a conflict, I've examined what role I play, and now I'm trying to get to that attitude. Once I feel like, you know what, I can't approach this in love. Here's something I do. I write out what I want to say. Why? Because when I write it out, it forces me to choose my words carefully. And when I read it, if it sounds harsh, or if it sounds like the argument is just going to lead to another argument. And here's the thing. I hate writing. Not the best journaler. Not the best emailer. I'm not the best. You know, I've written more than I ever want in my lifetime with all the stuff I had to go through in school. So I, writing is not my thing. But I know that if I don't, and I just start shooting from the hip, I don't trust what's going to come out of my mouth. I really don't. In the clarity of mind to be able to write something down and choose my words. 
even if it's a sentence or two, to say, this is the main thing for me. And then the third thing is to prepare yourself to practice the act of forgiveness. And by the way, I practice it. I try to do a lot on my own before I ever go to the person. I know some people, oh, I just can't wait. Somebody's mad at me. Somebody might not like me. Somebody might harbor unforgiveness. I got to call them right now. I got to go over to their house right now. I got to email them right now. That is unwise. Because your emotions and your fear of rejection are fueling you. Rather than your desire to grow in Wait, examine, get in that attitude of love, pray, say, God, this is going on. I need your help. I need you to calm me down. I need you to calm her down, him down. We, we, we can't work this out in the anger of our soul. What does James say? In your anger, do not sin. We can Help me to calm down. And then the third thing, help me to prepare to forgive. Ephesians 4.32 says, Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. We never have the luxury of saying, There is a person on earth I do not have to forgive. There is a person on earth I have permission to live the rest of my life in unforgiveness. Because of that last little cross. Because Christ has forgiven you. Now, by the way, when it comes to forgiveness, that doesn't mean forgetting. Uh, there are some issues where you can forgive the person, and you may never, it may never, never be wise for you to see them again or speak to them again. Uh, that forgiveness is really another issue in terms of the mechanics of it. But what my point is in, with this, with this particular point is this. One of the things that I do is I first forgive the person privately and then I forgive them publicly. And I'll literally say, God, I forgive so-and-so for hurting them. God, I forgive so-and-so for hurting them. I forgive them right now. I release them from my vengeance. I release them from my retribution. I release them from my thoughts of revenge. The movie in my mind where I am smashing their head in the ground is over. And I send the tape up to you. That's forgiveness. I practice it privately first. So that when I get to it publicly, not only can I be convincing, but I've already gone through some of the steps of forgiveness by forgiving them privately in my heart first. And then fourth, bestow the affirming power of speaking a blessing. I, don't, I didn't have it up there on the slides, but if I'd have thought about it, I would have. The book of 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 8 through 12, are worthy of memorizing. And the, the reason is, its essential thesis is this. We receive blessings from God as we give blessings to others. And 1 Peter 8 through 12 is the exact template. I mean, one, one of the most concise I've seen in the Bible in how to do that. First thing it says in 1 Peter 3 8, finally, all of you be like minded, be sympathetic, love one another, be compassionate and humble. What's it say? What's he saying? Blessing is a choice. 
When the Bible says be, it's not saying feel. Be compassionate. Be forgiving. Be like-minded. It's not saying feel. It's saying this is a choice you make to be this. In the book, in the book a Song of Solomon, Solomon complimented his wife over 40 times in that love poem. Compliments are powerful. One of the biggest things, if I were to ever, you know, develop a marriage curriculum or whatever, it would be a whole huge chapter on compliments. It's amazing where speaking blessings to another person can just fill life in them like, like you've never seen. One time, recently, I was playing uh, something sporting. I was playing basketball, that's what it was. Uh, and... Uh, and one of the guy, guys I was playing with said something that you know, I know guys say. I was an older guy. I know guys say this. I never quite got it. But he said, all right, I got to go home to my old lady. You ever heard that? Ever heard a husband call their wife his old lady? First of all, I mean, that, isn't that a reflection on him? You know, but anyway, you know, so he said, I, I got I to go you know, home to my old lady. And so I, I thought to myself, ooh, man, I want to do something witty here. I want to figure this. So I heard something, and I heard something once, and I said, oh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal that. I'm going to do it. He said, what do you got to do? I said, well, I got to go home to Queen Tanya. And uh, he went, oh, yeah, your wife's really controlling, huh? She's the queen, huh? I said, no, no, that's not why I said that. He said, well, why you said that? I said, because if you treat your wife like a queen, she'll treat you like a king. Amen. And he just kind of had that smile, you know, and I, I wanted to get it, you know. Don't call your wife an old lady. She's a queen. You treat her like a queen, she'll treat you like a queen. Amen? First Peter 3, 9 says, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing because to this you were called. It's the direct opposite of returning insult for insult. First Peter 3, 10, for whoever would love life, and see good deeds, days. Whoever would love life and see good days must keep their tongue from evil. What's the bottom line? The bottom line is we are all so filled with selfish and pride. I don't know how any marriage works. That's the bottom line. As I have been married for 15 years and I have counseled marriages for about 12 of those 15 if there's one thing I have found is we can so quickly get into gossip so quickly get into criticism so quickly let our thoughts become belittling and condescending and demeaning Part of the reason why I wake up and pray every day is it seems that no matter what I accomplished spiritually the day before, when I wake up, I naturally default to selfishness. I naturally default to my own pride. I naturally default to wanting what I want. I naturally default to not wanting to get what I don't feel I deserve. Sometimes it seems like we'll fight to our dying breath to get what we feel is ours. And then I read that passage in James 4, 6. It says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we're proud, 
And I am one of them. Believe me, I am. We're fighting nobody but God. We may think we're fighting our spouse. We may think we're fighting our friends. We may think we're fighting the man. We may think we're fighting the government. But when we work in pride, we're fighting no one else but God. In Mark 10, 20, Mark 10, 43, there's probably one of the most stupidest arguments you'll ever see in the Bible. It's the dumbest thing you've ever heard. Jesus, the Son of God, is standing there, and his disciples come up to him, and they say, who's the greatest? Can you imagine that? You've got a miracle worker right next to you. You've got someone who's teaching things and saying things in a way that's never been done, and you're arguing who the greatest is. Jesus says, well, whoever would be great among you, would be your servant. That's an upside down world if I ever heard it. But remember, this is the same Jesus who got down on his knees and undressed himself to look like a servant and washed the feet of who? Who? The disciples, yeah, but which one particularly? Peter? Yeah. Judas, right? Jesus got on his knees and washed and massaged the foot of the man who would betray him and murder him just a few hours later. That's a servant king. What is Jesus saying with this? You want a great marriage? Become a great servant. You want a great life? Become a great servant. You want to be great? Before you learn how to stand, first learn how to kneel. So it gets worse. Jesus says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to what? Serve. I think this is one of the reasons why people say, how could Jesus even be God? If I were God, I wouldn't say stuff like that. I mean, what kind of God is this who says, when I come, I didn't come to uh, be served, I came to serve. That doesn't sound like God at all. And yet, it forces me to ask the question, in my marriage, have I come to be served or to serve? One of the things that absolutely makes me sick about some of the, the, the young people's approach to marriage is when they make this list. <coughs> you ever heard someone? I've made a list of the kind of husband I want. I've made a list of the kind of wife I want. A list of all the things that I want in my spouse. And really what it is is it's nothing more than a job description for ways that you can serve me. If you're lucky enough to be chosen by me and spend the rest of my life with me, then these are the ways that you can serve me. Philippians chapter 2 says, do nothing. Nothing's a big category. Nothing's a huge category. Do nothing out of selfish motives or vain conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each not only look to his own interests, but the interests of others. I'll close with a story. It's been messing with me for a long time. I went to school in an overseas parochial school, and there was tons of different religions, nationalities. I, I, I went to school in the Middle East, and it, was, and it was, you know, 
an international school. One of my friends was named Manwan, and uh, he was an interesting guy. He never did the dating thing. He he never, in fact, he was he was like 15 going on 40. You know, so I remember we used to joke with him. And I remember once he had kind of let out that his wife had already been picked, that he had an arranged marriage. He was Indian, Manwar Singh. He was Indian. And I remember we were joking with him, you know, and one of my friends said something on it. I forget. He said, well, how do you know if she's any good? And I, I knew what my friend meant. How do you know if she's any good in bed? And he kind of looked at him and smiled and said, how will I know if she's bad? If she's the only one I ever had. And I remember thinking, ooh, that's a good comeback. And then I said, well, how, how, do you, how, how could you not pick your wife? And he said, well, for us, in our culture, it's different. You spend your whole lives trying to find that person. Whereas we spend our whole lives preparing for the covenant with the person who's already been chosen for us. Now I remember in the years after that, I remember thinking to myself, what an interesting proposal. What if I had spent all of my formative years preparing for commitment and covenant rather than building my list of ways that a wife would serve me? What I want for life. And over the years, I thought to myself, you know what? He had something. He had his finger on something. His culture, something. And I'm not saying that I think we should all go to arranged marriages. I'm not so sure my parents, you know, if I would have trusted them with that decision. But I can't say that I can't see the, the incredible example in spending one's life preparing to covenant so often in our culture, we really prepare for contract. So I want to end this series by saying, let us leave this teaching, preparing for covenant, to be committed, unconditionally, honoring our vows, and get rid of the contractual ways that our culture has. Do it, and we'll be blessed, and so will the rest of the world. Amen? Amen. Amen. Stand with me. Worship be going forward.